three, two, one. this week on Kentucky Caliber. This is our end of month wrap up for April of 2022 and we're going to start by talking about some new developments in the realm of science and technology. Good to focus on something positive, some good news that's out there in the world for a change. And this week researchers from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology told the world or announced that they had come up with a new kind of thermophotovoltaic cell and their new cell converts heat to electricity with an efficiency they claim which is over 40%. And that's a significant number because it's pretty close to what you get with, a, say, a traditional steam turbine in a, in a conventional power plant. And the way these uh, new cells work is simply by heating up a semiconducting material. Once you heat these materials up to a certain point, they start to get, uh, there start to be electrons that move and that generates electricity. So what's really interesting about this particular design is uh, with that, that level of efficiency, you have something that, that has the potential to be scaled up to create what the scientists call a grid-scale thermal battery system, which basically would just absorb energy from the sun, store it in banks of graphite, and then whenever needed, you would just convert that heat into electricity and send it out to the power grid. What's really neat about that system is that it doesn't have very many moving parts. If you take a look at the power grid we have today, where we have turbines and we have transmission lines, and we have at the source, we have lots of parts that are moving, which means that they, they generate friction, they wear down, they have to be replaced, they require maintenance, they're expensive to maintain. A thermal grid, or a, th a grid scale thermal battery rather, would not require any of those things because it doesn't have uh, hardly any moving parts, yet it could still demonstrate uh, electricity and most importantly, it could do it from a renewable source of energy, namely the sun. You know, the sun every second converts around 600 billion tons of hydrogen into energy. We see that as light. And so based on that consumption rate, uh, based on the mass of the sun and the, uh, the rate at which the, 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 it's just a giant fusion engine anyway, the rate at which it's converting hydrogen, it should last or another around four, four and a half billion years before it runs out of fuel and then becomes a, a red dwarf and then finally collapses. Um, but so that's a long time and far beyond uh, the lifetime of any individual or even uh, society so far uh, for humanity. So it's a good long-term uh, potential source of power that we've been trying to access for quite some time. And, you know, the, the normal uh, solar energy has always been hamstrung because of its inefficiency. Uh, we lose a lot in the uh, the transmission process, so much so uh, that it's that it becomes more expensive to do that uh, than to use other more traditional sources of power like uh, oil or coal. But were we able to scale up a, a grid scale thermal battery system like this, then it would be possible to create a system that could still supply energy needs, uh, but from the sun. Uh, so it would be a, a big win for solar power. Uh, enthusiasts and for uh, for solar energy in, uh, in general. So I wish the, the team at MIT their success in continuing their research and their development and it would be good uh, in the future if we could get a system like that that to, could be scaled up to the point where it was large enough to power a home 
or even a community, and maybe uh, even after that, uh, a city. So that, that's some good news. Another interesting development in the realm of uh, science and technology, there's a think tank out there called Rethink X. And Rethink X essentially presents itself as an independent scientific research team with, uh, it's made up of some Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, uh, some science PhDs, and they issued a report this week, which is sort of interesting to read. I, I suppose um, throughout the past, there's probably been a lot of reports like this that uh, at the time may have generated a lot of buzz, but ultimately turned out to be either you know flawed or not true, or it just the predictions that it laid out didn't happen. And that may very well be the case uh, with this one. But I still think it's an interesting report. And if, if you look at the executive summary of the report, and this is in the uh, food and agriculture sector. This particular report by Rethink X says, and I'm quoting the report here, we are on the cusp of the deepest, fastest, most consequential disruption in food and agricultural production since the first domestication of plants and animals 10,000 years ago. So that's a pretty big claim. The, the summary goes on to say that this is primarily a, pro, a protein disruption problem driven by economics. Uh, in their view, the cost of proteins will be five times cheaper by 2030 and then 10 times cheaper by 2035, uh, cheaper than existing animal proteins, um, ultimately becoming uh, or nearing the cost of sugar. And so they believe the impact of this on the uh, industrial animal farming industry will be uh, profound. So much so that they go on to claim uh, later on in their reports that they think that uh, by 2030, this is their projections now, uh, demand for, for cow products will fall by 70% from their current levels. By 2035, they estimate that demand will shrunk by 90%. Uh, and other markets such as chicken, pig, and fish will follow. So what they essentially are saying is that those sectors of the life, those livestock sectors of the economy are headed for uh, bankruptcy because precision biology and precision agriculture will enable cheaper ways to produce uh, the kind of food supply we want, but just in a different way. So I, I'm not saying that in any way, shape, or form that I think that's going to happen and that we should start counting the days until the, the, the calendar says 2020 or 2030 so we can see if they're right. But it's just interesting to try to, all, it's always a good thing when you have researchers and, and thinkers out there who are trying to imagine a world that's different uh, from the one that we currently live in. That's, I think that's a really good thing. Uh, a lot of our problems in the past have stemmed from a failure of imagination. And so I, I applaud thinkers out there for thinking outside the box. And uh, even if they come up with projections that ultimately turn out to be either not correct or totally wrong, it's okay. Uh, it's still a good thing to, be, uh, to, to exercise that brain power and to think outside the box a little bit. And, you know, you can see the same sort of thing happening with electric vehicles. There's been quite a big, bit of a push, both in the automotive industry and in the United States from the government, uh, to expand the uh, offerings or the availability of electric vehicles to consumers in hopes that uh, folks who drive will switch over to EVs as opposed to the traditional you know, gas-powered combustion engine vehicles. There are some advantages to using uh, electric vehicles. They have fewer moving parts, they have fewer maintenance, um, and obviously you wouldn't have to uh, worry about gas prices. There are some disadvantages, of course, uh, as they currently stand, uh, the electric vehicles, if you, in some of them, if you lose the battery or the battery uh, goes bad or replacing it can even cost as much or more than the vehicle itself. So there's, there's quite a few, uh, there's still a lot of work to be done to get the, uh, the marketplace ready 
to have the availability of electric vehicles on, on par with uh, the gas, gas vehicles. But if you think about what that would mean, if, they, if we do get to a point where electric vehicles become the predominant form of transportation for people in the United States or, or elsewhere, you could see a situation where everybody just plugs their car in at home to charge it and you wouldn't have need for, say, places like gas stations. So the, the side of the, the gas station in every town or on every you know city block, uh, which we're used to, may uh, disappear in the future. There may be no need for gas stations and uh, or just uh, or just mobile charging station for folks who want to uh, charge their vehicles up uh, mid mid route uh, depending on where they're traveling to so that's just an interesting uh, thought to think about um, how the landscape how our daily lives could change even in, in very short periods of time thanks to uh, science and innovation and of course here uh, this year in april of 22 uh, one of the biggest stories uh, in the tech sector for this month is certainly the acquisition of twitter by uh, elon musk who offered, I think, $44 billion or $45 billion uh, to buy Twitter. And apparently, as of this week, it looks like that offer has either already been accepted or is going to be accepted. And Mr. Musk has claimed that he's going to make Twitter a, a freer place. It, we'll see what that means uh, as time goes on. It's an interesting purchase. You know, there's a lot of social media platforms that are much, much bigger and more popular than Twitter. I mean, Facebook is enormously bigger uh, even Instagram is, is bigger than Twitter here in the United States. And in other places like Russia, you've got Telegram, which is much more popular. But still, Twitter has around 230, 231 million users. And so it's it's a very robust, uh, it's a good-sized platform. It'll be interesting to see what the new owner does with it, whether they follow up on their, their claims that they'll make it freer. And, and if that means removing the gatekeepers uh, from that platform, then that could uh, have... An interesting impact not only on Twitter but on other social media platforms if Twitter does in fact decide to go with a, a freer approach where content that would have previously been removed for violating uh, community standards no longer is removed and it gets to stay on there it'll be interesting to see if that leads to success for Twitter um, and if other companies that are in the, the other social media platforms will want to imitate that success or if it fails and it causes problems for example, if you decide to allow violent extremists to post their messages on Twitter and that leads to terrorist attacks somewhere, then maybe other social media platforms may decide, well, that was a that was a big mistake and we don't want to we don't want to duplicate that. So they may go in the opposite direction. But either way, uh, some changes will be coming to the social media ecosystem uh, for the world. And we'll have to just wait and see exactly what those changes will be. And just a quick correction there on my uh, opening um, my earlier comment on uh, solar power, it's actually 600 million tons of hydrogen. I think I said billion. That's That was just a, a misspeak on my part. The sun actually converts 600 million tons of hydrogen per second, not, not 600 billion. Moving uh, a, away from science a little bit into the realm of uh, things that are more uh, political, France just had a presidential election, this uh, which happened on uh, Sunday, and something unusual for the, for the French-speaking world took place when um, President Macron was re-elected for a second term. And that's something that we don't normally see. France has a history of voting out uh, incumbents. Uh, voters there tend to like outsiders or folks that are new uh, to the position. And so it's been quite some time since an incumbent was uh, given a, a second chance, or a second term rather, uh, in office. And uh, President Macron has done that this week by defeating his challenger, Marie Le Pen, 
who is often characterized uh, in the United States and in Europe as more of a right-wing sort of candidate. And some of the policies that she um, that she promotes, being tough on immigration, would, would echo or, or would resonate with folks on the political right uh, here in the United States. She also has expressed a, a little bit more of a friendly and sympathetic uh, stance towards Russian President Vladimir Putin. So had Le Pen won that election, there is a good chance that the policies of France with respect to Ukraine could have been uh, significantly changed, and that would have had repercussions not only for France, but also for NATO and, and indeed the world. Uh, you know, the French president has quite a bit more power than the president of the United States, for example. The French president serves a longer term. They, they serve for five years. They are the, they're also the commander-in-chief of their armed forces, but they also have other powers that the American president doesn't, although some of them may wish they did. Uh, the president can dissolve parliament and call for new elections in France, whereas that uh, certainly is not the case here in the United States. But um, long story short, it's unusual to see a, um, an incumbent get reelected, and a lot of folks who breathe the sigh of relief uh, about Macron getting reelected ought to take a moment uh, and think about why Marie Le Pen's popularity increased in France. So this is her third run for president. And each time she's ran, she's gotten a larger and, and bigger piece of the pie. More people voted for her on her third run than they did either the second or the first time. And if you look at a map um, of French voting demographics, if you put it up on a map, what you would see is something that's sort of similar to the pattern of election outcomes here in the United States, where we have this sort of not just red-blue divide, but also a rural-urban divide where the countryside, a lot of folks uh, who, who vote for conservative or right-leaning populist-type candidates live in the countryside, and folks that live in the larger urban areas are more inclined to vote for uh, political liberals. Now, Macron is really more of a right-center candidate, uh, even for France, so the, the French choices were really a, a right-center candidate or a far-right candidate, uh, not, not a political liberal in the same sense of um, liberalism in the United States. But the, the point is, we should ask ourselves why folks in the countryside keep giving so much support to, to right-leaning populists, whether it was Donald Trump here in the United States, or whether it's Macron in France, or whether it's Viktor Orban in Hungary, or even Vladimir Putin in, in Russia. Why do folks from, from the countryside have a tendency to vote for uh, candidates uh, of that style. And I think one of the reasons is because those are the only candidates offering solutions to, to their problems or they're doing the best job of presenting their solutions as uh, likely to succeed to voters in those areas. And I think that the folks who, who are on the political left here in the United States should, should read that as a warning that if they don't come up with some viable solutions or, or offers to help uh, folks who live in rural areas with whether it's economic inequality or the, the whatever the problem that those areas are facing, if voters there don't think that liberals are, are trying to help them or that centrists are trying to help them, then they'll naturally turn to right-wing populist candidates. And we've certainly seen that uh, take place in Europe and even to a lesser degree uh, here in the United States. So it's it's a victory for Macron in getting reelected, but it's also a warning that if the underlying conditions which are driving sort of right-wing populism are not addressed, it's likely that right-wing populism, uh, whether it's in Europe or the United States, will continue 
to grow in popularity and will result in more officials uh, of that political persuasion getting elected to office and putting those policies into effect. Whether those policies in the case of Le Pen or in the case of uh, Vladimir Putin or even in the case, to a lesser extent, the case of Donald Trump, who are folks who present themselves as populists and who champion some populist causes, but also want to be more of an authoritarian style of leader than their countries are used to. Uh, that's not true for Russia. They're, they're definitely used to more authoritarian style of uh, leaders. But for the other folks involved, for the Europeans or the United States, uh, oftentimes the populace will present themselves as the the savior of the rural community, but in exchange for that, they want a uh, they want much more power for themselves, and so that could that is likely to continue uh, trending in that direction if folks on the left side of the political uh, spectrum do not do a better job of connecting with voters in rural areas and offering credible real solutions to the problems that folks in those areas face. And of course, the situation in Ukraine has continued to evolve. We're now just over 60 days after the Russian invasion. And it appears, based on not only information who come, that comes from the Ukrainians themselves, from European and American intelligence agencies, from journalists that are on the ground in Ukraine, but also from the spokesman for the Russian government uh, themselves, it does appear that the, opera the Russian combat operations in Ukraine has shifted its focus towards the far east uh, to the Donbas regions, uh, also including Mariupol on the coast, and that they're, they're, they're focusing their military and their firepower and their efforts away from Kiev and the center of Ukraine and more towards the east and the southeast. And of course, for folks who don't know, you know, the Donbas war itself is sort of one of the things that was, that's been smoldering on and off in Ukraine since 2014. There have been um, active fighting in that region for, for almost eight years now. And it's not hard to figure out why, although the roots of uh, the Donbas War are, are worth taking a brief look into, the, the region itself, which is in the, the far eastern portion of Ukraine, is a very heavily industrialized area. There's a lot of coal resources. There's a lot of med metallurgical resources. There's a lot of industry. And so what that means is in economic terms that there's, there's something there uh, that's worth fighting over, and it's that, that both Ukrainians and, and Russians want to want to have control over within their their respective jurisdictions. The same is true for Crimea, which of course is situated on the coast of the the northern coast of the Black Sea. Historically, that's been Russia's only way to access uh, the ocean year round. You know, Russia doesn't have a warm water port, uh, even as massive as the Russian land area is. In the wintertime, which lasts a long time in the northern latitudes, their, their ports freeze up. And so the only way they can access the open ocean is to go uh, south to Crimea, the Black Sea, through the Bosphorus Straits to the Mediterranean Sea, and finally from the Mediterranean Sea out into the Atlantic. And so that's the strategic value uh, of Crimea to not only Russia today, but it, it's always been that way uh, for several hundred years for what was the Russian Empire, and then after that the Soviet Union, and of course now uh, the Russian Federation. So there are economic prizes that are um, actively being pursued now by Russian military forces, despite what they may say about uh, their reasons for wanting to take control of those areas, they have a strong national economic interest in adding those territories to their own control. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I'm quite certain uh, Russian authorities are well aware of that, uh, whether or not you know they admit it, so acknowledge it publicly is another thing. 
uh, and they will certainly or most likely to continue their their false rhetoric about uh, trying to denazify Ukraine, which is uh, a fiction that they themselves created. But it's a fiction that they created uh, for specific reasons, and it grew out of the dispute not just uh, in Kiev but in the, the Donbas region itself. When in 2014, after Russian forces had taken Crimea, you need to understand a little something about the Donbas region itself, which it, it does have a, a sizable Russian-speaking uh, population who culturally and uh, politically tend to align themselves more or see themselves more as Russian than as Ukrainian. And when the maiden protests broke out in 2013, uh, the reaction in the Donbas region was was quite negative. Many people there did not support uh, the uh, the maiden protest, which drove then President Yanukovych from power, which triggered the entire chain of events that led to the current uh, the current war. But folks in Donbas region did not support that, and so they began to to demonstrate and to show that that sentiment publicly. And folks who were pro maiden uh, supporters who wanted Yanukovych gone. Uh, initially, they, they were just you know pushing and shoving and shouting matches in, in the Donbas region, but that quickly intensified into something much much larger and more militant. Where there folks that folks that were on different sides of that line, it wasn't long until they started shooting at each other. And Russian forces, which at first came in as uh, special forces and undercover security agents, uh, by 2014, Russia came to Donbas in force, and so. The Ukrainian military responded, and the fighting has been going on on and off in the Donbas region ever since. Um, it should be noted, I think, uh, it's important to, to remember that the fighting in the Donbas region is one of the ways, or it's one of the reasons, rather, that the Ukrainian military has been able to, to do, has been able to fight so effectively against the Russian forces. Uh, because for the past eight years, Ukraine has been preparing itself for what they believed, and, and they were proven correct, was an inevitable full-scale Russian invasion. And they used the Donbass region to not only train uh, their military forces, but as a wake-up call. And so due to the ongoing conflict in Donbass, by, by 2016, Ukraine's parliament instituted broad reforms across the Ukrainian military to modernize it, to improve their training, to improve their ability to function in a decentralized manner so that if Kiev were destroyed, they would still be able to fight on their own. Um, one of the changes they made was to let junior officers on the battlefield make a lot more decisions. It used to be, before the before Donbass, though, the Ukrainian military was essentially almost in ruins. It was a very small force, not capable of uh, projecting much power. Uh, but since the Donbass fighting has started, Ukraine has, has modernized, reformed. It's been trained and equipped by, by the United States and Europe. Uh, in addition, civilian militias also, uh, even from the beginning, volunteered uh, to go fight in Donbas region, so they started getting uh, combat experience themselves. And in what would have been a, a foreshadow of the current events, uh, back in 2014, just before the Minsk agreements were signed, Russian forces were taking up position around Mariupol, and it was thought at the time that the city was going to be destroyed in a siege, but the Minsk agreements uh, prevented that. Of course, they, in the long term, we now know they only really delayed Mariupol's day of reckoning for about eight years, uh, and the Minsk agreements were, were violated almost immediately after they were formed. Uh, but long story short, the Donbas War uh, gave Ukraine eight years to prepare for combat with Russia, and it put that time to good use. So that's one of the reasons why I think we continue to see such an, an effective and determined 
Ukrainian resistance against a superior Russian force in terms of material and resources, they've had a long time to prepare for it. And I think that uh, the, the preparations that they have made uh, have borne fruit. And we've seen that uh, in the past two months since the Russian invasion started. And finally this week, we started on a good note, so I'd like to end on a good note with some just some news that everyone here in Kentucky already knows about, but we wanted to talk about just a, just for a, a brief moment. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm a longtime UK basketball fan. I, I did my undergraduate work at UK in uh, 1996. My se- that was my senior year in 96 when we won a, a national championship, and I was on campus there with a friend of mine, and, and we were uh, part of the celebration that took place uh, there at uh, at the time, I don't know if it's still there or not, but we were at Two Keys Tavern uh, most of the day. In fact, I remember that morning that it, for whatever reason it happened to be really really cold that year, and we the only seat we could get was on the outside area, even though they had like a, a tent or a tarp put up out there. We got there at like seven in the morning. <laughs> we sat there for literally you know twelve or thirteen hours uh, just waiting for the game to start so we could watch the game on campus, and then after we won. It was just you know celebration time. I remember we just ran up and down. Uh, we walked back to um, to Rose Street, and it was just bumper to bumper traffic. We just ran up and down uh, the street there, high fiving people in their cars and and just strangers on the street. So that was that was before things got out of hand and, and, and property started getting you know damaged or destroyed. We we left long before that that started. But uh, so I remember that uh, that was a great celebration and a good time. Uh, on the University of Kentucky's campus there after the uh, the championship win in 96. So this year with, with uh, Oscar Shibway uh, making a surprise announcement to come back, I mean, you would have thought someone with all the accomplishments that he has uh, at, at the college level would certainly be well positioned to go on and uh, enter the draft and uh, get picked up by an NBA team and, and deservedly so make, make lots of money and have a great career. But he's chosen to come back to Kentucky for another year. And I, I can't think of another year where we've had a player with that many win that many awards uh, in in a college season and then come back to play for uh, the University of Kentucky for another year. I know we've had a lot of, of players who've won awards that return for for more years, but I can't think of anybody that has that many. Um, so it's great that we have a coach who's dedicated to to winning you know national championships and going to the Final Four and, and having winning seasons, and, and we do, and it, it's great to have that. But it's even more uh, when you have a player who comes back and, and clearly wants to, to dedicate themselves to uh, to winning a national championship. And I think the the uh, unfortunate early first-round loss in the uh, NCAA tournament this year is one of the things that motivated Oscar Shibway to come back and uh, play for another year in Kentucky. So having him back, having Wheeler back at the, at the point guard position, I would say Kentucky is well-positioned to add in uh, some new talent because Coach Callis is a great recruiter. So when you have you know anchors with experience like that, and, and accomplishments like that, and you're going to add some new talent into the mix coming up. Uh, I, I can't wait for uh, the new season, uh, the new basketball season to start this fall. And, I, you know, everybody wants to make predictions about basketball. I, I'll, I'll just say I think with that returning talent, uh, it, there's, certainly, there's certainly a foundation that you can build a great championship caliber team around. So I think uh, that would put Kentucky in a good position already to start uh, thinking about making a run for the uh, the tournament next year. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, as always, we have to wait through the summer before we even get back to uh, college basketball season. But I look forward to it. I can't wait. And uh, I think Kentucky will be in a good position to uh, to have not only a successful season, but also to make a, a run at the tournament next year. So that's all I've got for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you have a great day. Take care. Mm-hmm.